we're blessed in large measure today to be able to come together on this first day of the week to appreciate, of course, the privilege it's ours of offering our praise and adoration to the God that made us. The songs that you and I just sang together, haven't the words been very stimulating? Leaning on Jesus, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Walking in sunlight, those songs have tremendous messages. And if by this reason we in essence were to almost appreciate a brevity in our total lesson, we have been blessed already in the magnificence of songs like that. The lesson today, we're going to talk about taters. As we do that, I hope that we'll at least be mindful that that, that play on words, or at least that choice of title, is one that I think will speak a great deal for each of us to consider, because it'll have before us a number of matters that, quite frankly, will challenge me as well as it'll challenge you. Now, I know that we're very familiar with taters in this part of the world, and quite frankly, they make a very wonderful part of a diet. But there are some things that can be said from a spiritual standpoint, using the Word of God as our guide that may, in fact, motivate us to think somewhat about taters as well. This slide before is an introduction to the lesson today. Isn't it so that you and I are made in the image and likeness of God? And that being said, we in fact are a very special creature of the God of heaven. He has endowed us with personalities, with traits, with characteristic gifts and capabilities. And the goal, of course, is to use them in the way that would glorify the God of heaven. Ephesians 3.21 reminds us, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. As we seek today, and yea, all the days of the week, to direct that proper homage and glory to God. Let's talk about taters. You know, there are some taters, as you grow them, dig them out of the ground. I know that my family has a similar experience to yours. Sometimes you pop them out of the ground, and they're nicely sizable, very delectably looking, and you store them and just can't wait to eat them a bit later in the year. And there's some of them that come out of the ground rotten. They're not at all tasty, and you don't even preserve them for obvious reasons. As you and I think a bit about taters today, isn't it so that it's also quite possible to appreciate a variety in the application of that and the words we'll use to describe these particular attributes will all have a ring like a word tater in it. And so the first one is, let's consider dictator. So in a congregation or in a walk of life, think with me for a few moments about dictator. Now we each know what the word means, for we've encountered it so often in other circles of life. But you know well what dictator likes to do. Think about a person in the church who might have this characteristic or someone maybe in a family or some other style of workplace. Dictator thinks that it's got to be his way or no way. Dictator's under the illusion that he directs everything and nothing can be done without his approval, without his say-so, and without his guiding the appreciation as it takes place. We each understand rather well that dictator thus will destroy any harmony or unity that might otherwise exist among that group of people. If a church is sadly afflicted with a dictator, 
You might notice even elders. We understand they are given by the God of heaven, delegated authority in the congregation, but even they bow before the nature of the great shepherd. 1 Peter 5, verses 3 through 5. But we're not talking about someone like that. We each have known someone who overestimates their position, who overestimates their wisdom, and who overestimates the authority they otherwise might have. Dictator can be a real problem. You can imagine what a thorn this person can make for the eldership. This person isn't an elder, for example, and yet he or she may well suppose that they have the God-given right to direct virtually everything that takes place. I've asked you to consider a number of verses that speak a great deal about dictator. Maybe none is as potent as 3 John 9. You remember that as John penned that little book of 3 John, he directed some words of advice to this man known as Gaius. Sadly enough, in the congregation, though, wherein Gaius served, there was a man known as Diotrephes. And the text says, he loveth to have the preeminence among them. He was a dictator. Here was a man who stirred up the brethren in that location and who caused a great deal of problems for the ongoing advancement of the kingdom of God in that place. You may recall what John said. He said, I'll deal with him when I come. Diotrephes didn't get away scot-free. The Bible doesn't reveal to us what took place when John came to visit. But I have every reason to anticipate that the confrontation went exactly the way God would have wanted it to. And that would not have boded well for Diotrephes. Other verses remind us that in Romans 12 verse 3, none of us ought to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think but to be motivated with humility and motivated with a sense of unpretentiousness. Mr. Dictator, you see, is no friend to the ongoing work of the Lord, but only if he would humble himself and put aside this terrible affliction of the tater known as dictator. But what about number two, Mr. Rotator? Rotator, you see, has an entirely different attitude problem. We all know what... It means to rotate. You turn about. You don't always face the same direction. You're moving about unsettled in the character of your orientation and station. It's also true that that can be an affliction for the people of God, can't it? A person who's inconsistent. You can't depend on him. He might be there in president services or he might not be. She might be there in present and services, but she might not be. You invite this person to participate. They may and they may not. They're just unreliable. You can see the association to rotator. Isn't it true in that connection that, too, a number of features in the Word of God remind us that God does not like us to be Mr. or Mrs. Rotator? Be ye steadfast, unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, to borrow the wording of 1 Corinthians 15, 58, here was a congregation at Corinth, and Paul admonished them in that passage we just noted, that they were to be steadfast, consistent, if you please, constant and unwavering in their devotion to truth. Not rotating, not gyrating, 
not in some way inconsistent in regard to always facing the sun, S-O-N. Maybe it's in that connection that a few other verses I've invited you to note would be these. You might recall that among the churches, the seven churches of Asia, Jesus had some things to say to some of those congregations about the nature of what might be seen as rotation. That church at Laodicea, you recall they were lukewarm. You couldn't depend on them. Oh, they thought highly of their own capability and person and even their own stature. But the Lord, in fact, in response to them said, You're miserable and poor and blind and wretched and naked. You are in need of great help. And yet they didn't think they needed anything. Well, sometimes that's the problem with the rotator, isn't it? He or she thinks all is well. They do not see a problem in the inconsistency. And yet, just as was true of that church at Laodicea, the Lord said, unless you repent, I'm going to take away the blessings you otherwise would have had. Two issues so far connected to taters. What about a third tater? This one's agitator. Mr. or Mrs. Agitator. We all know what the word agitate means. It involves the matter of stirring up. It involves a matter of provoking in a way that's not good. It's amazing, isn't it? The Bible encourages us to provoke others to goodness, not provoking them or agitating them in a way that's opposite from that. Isn't it so that agitate, Mr. and Mrs. Agitator, you see, stirs up brethren, stirs up problems, stirs up contentions that would otherwise not be present. They often thrive on it. Haven't you known people like that? In any organization, perhaps at work, at school, or otherwise, they seemingly thrive on bringing before others what otherwise would destroy unity. They thrive on bringing people at odds. They thrive on bringing them to the point of contention or quarrelsome character. Well, that, of course, can be true in the church, too. It can be true in families. It can be true in any grouping of people. As you'll notice on that slide, some things about agitator. There are some easy ways the devil uses in a very dramatic character to prompt this. Gossip and tail-bearing are at the top of the list. You let that reach its head and become very active in any group, and it, of course, won't be long before sentiments that were thought to be shared in private will at least in some indirect way be known in public. And people will be at odds, and folks won't get along. Harmony will no longer exist. Mr. and Mrs. Agitator, you see, seemingly may well think that they haven't done anything wrong, that they have simply shared information. Really? Didn't the Lord command and urge us through many characteristic passages of Scripture that we might well recall Ephesians 4.29? As, he, as Paul spoke to the church there, was it not he said to them, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Is this which I'm about to say going to lead to an esteemed characteristic in the impression of the one to whom I'm speaking regarding the subjects that I have mentioned? If that isn't true, I ought to leave it unsaid. 
maybe it is in that connection we then appreciate, oh, how Mr. or Mrs. Agitator can often spread gossip or rumors. How often the Old Testament particularly reminds us of the evil of this. In Proverbs 26.20, Proverbs 17.1, just to name a few, the Old Testament writer Solomon pointed out in rather dramatic character the danger and the evil that's wrought by those kinds of activities. As you and I have already seen then, this is the third of the taters that are rotten. They're not of any interesting pursuit to encourage others to behave this way. Mr. Irritator. This is in many ways a close cousin to Agitator because Mr. Irritator is indeed a very notable thorn to the ongoing progress in so many ways. I've tried to describe it rather briefly. This person, as an irritator, often stands opposed to various works or ideas, unwilling to even consider any new way of doing anything. Sometimes that can be a real hindrance, a real opposition to, to the procession, to the progress. Quite likely the church won't move much, if at all, forward with irritator at work. Because what will happen is the group will have to be self-centered, always mindful of trying to quash out the little fires that irritator has brought to bear. When you can't really look onward and forward and upward to the rightful place of, of proper subjects. One more time, you may notice a few verses. The Bible surely encourages us to be very centered on accomplishing the work of the Lord. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and following, what a beautiful example. Now you recall the chapter didn't start in a beautiful way. There were some widows being neglected in the daily ministration. So here was an opportunity, if it had been proceeding in the wrong way, for suddenly this neglect, even if it were very unintentional, we all know how someone could take that. Well, do you know what they did? They neglected my aunt. They sure saw fit to take care of the other woman. What about my aunt? And suddenly, all harmony could have been lost in the church at Jerusalem. If that had been allowed to have its head. And yet, you and I know when that information was brought to the apostles, they said, look out among you seven deacons, seven individuals that we can appoint over this business. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the Word of God. Didn't they handle that with such wisdom? Prompted, no doubt, by the greatness of the prudence of the God of heaven. But they handled it in such a way that matter did not, in fact, allow any irritators to cause any great disharmony to the church at Jerusalem. We can learn a lot about that today, can't we? And may we in prudence not allow that kind of thing to go where that person might want it to go, but where we know is not wise. In 1 Peter 4.10, aren't we encouraged there to be mindful of using our skills or capabilities in those ways that would lead to the blessing of God, not to the satisfaction of Mr. or Mrs. Irritator? These four taters have all been rather unpleasant in many ways. And it'll continue with Hesitator. Mr. or Mrs. Hesitator, we all know what it means to hesitate. You are good at procrastination. Put it off, put it off, put it off. We'll deal with it later. 
we'll take up that subject when a better time comes, when a better circumstance presents. Sometimes a person in that kind of arena will often want, let's study this issue a little bit more. Why don't we put in place a committee and they can proceed into a very researched consideration of this matter. I'm going to be quick to say you can study on subject on and on and on. But isn't it true there comes a time when action may need to be taken, when the matter may need to be dealt with, when the issue may need to be hit head on. Didn't Nehemiah do it that way? There were those in Nehemiah 6 who stood in essence in a proverbial way right before him and said, we need to do this. Nehemiah could have said, let me study about that. I'll get back to you in due time, but let me and my cabinet study a bit about it. And that wasn't Nehemiah's approach. He said, we're not going to do it that way. And I don't want to hear any more about it. Now there's a time and a place to set hesitation aside. I'm not in any way saying studying a subject properly is a bad idea. Because I think the Bible encourages us to be prudent and wise. But there comes a time once the facts are gathered, once the information is made plain, it's time to do something about it. It's time to act upon what one may know. Despite Mr. Hesitator's insistence on let's wait a little longer, let's procrastinate a bit further. You'll notice some verses I would ask you to consider in light of Mr. or Mrs. Hesitator. In Luke 14, 28, isn't it interesting that there, as the Lord made the statements, He insisted that it was time to act in light of the information known. And maybe that set of verses I've asked you to at least briefly contemplate at the end. Whatever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Doesn't that insist upon us to take the action on the things that God has allowed us to appreciate, to gather, and to know? In Philippians 4.13, maybe the most well-known verse in the book of Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. In light of the challenges, the afflictions, the oppressions we may face, Paul said, you need to do something. Didn't James put it like this? But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, James 1.22. Let's come to the sixth element of the taters in our study today. Spectator. Don't we often love spectator? Maybe you and I have been in his or her camp quite often. And in many ways, we are very familiar with it from the other attributes and aspects of our life. We go to a ball game and maybe watch our daughter or son participate in the action, and we are spectators on the sideline, encouraging indeed and assisting in what ways we would be able to, but admittedly, that's limited once the actual game begins. Isn't it true? We can, I suppose, begin to feel like that in the church. We might well attend the services, but somebody else will take care of all the classes, and someone else will lead the singing, and someone else will take care of all the other needful activities. I'll watch. I'll be passive, and I'll leave and go about my business. We have to be pretty careful with Mr. and Mrs. Spectator. Does God call us to be passive spectators in the church? Every program, every work, he or she will do that. They will do that. No wonder the worst 
pronouns is they. Because when we use that the wrong way, we don't include ourselves, you see. They'll do that work. They'll take care of that necessity. They'll make sure that need is fulfilled. And all the while, I, as Mr. and Mrs. Spectator, have no place but watch. Jesus doesn't call us to be spectators, does He? He calls us to do the work, to be involved with the work, for we are the church. On that slide, I've invited you to notice again a few passages to challenge us as we think about Mr. or Mrs. Spectator. At the bottom in Philippians 2 verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that is a commandment that's provided to you and to me. And notice, work out your own salvation. I shouldn't anticipate being a spectator. There are no spectators in the church of the Lord. We're all citizens in the Lord's army. We all follow His captainship, Hebrews 2.10. We all are those who you see have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and as such we're called to action in His army. Time and again in the New Testament that is urged upon us. Maybe that next passage I've asked you to appreciate drives that point home very strongly. In Matthew 25, verses 14 and following. The well-known reminder of the talents and the parable that went with it. There was, you see, a five-talent man and a two-talent man, both of which put into practice that which they had. But the one-talent man, he had it, but he didn't do anything with it. Maybe he was an expert at spectation, <laughs> at being Mr. Spectator. And yet, when the master came to make the time of reckoning, wasn't it true? He said, Thou wicked and slothful servant, get out of my kingdom. And he was cast into a place of outer darkness. You see, there's no place for Mr. or Mrs. Spectator. And so isn't that a lovely reminder that you and I should appreciate? That's another rotten tater. But number seven, Mr. or Mrs. Imitator. This one, again, we'll have to be a bit cautious as we give thought to what I mean at least by the reference to it. Because the word imitate means to copy or emulate the actions of another. It's true that the Bible encourages us in a way to be imitators. Didn't Paul say it like this? Be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. He would echo a similar sentiment in Ephesians 5.3. So imitating Christ is a wonderful thing. That's not what I mean here. To imitate means a person with no conviction. You simply parrot what someone else has said, what someone else has done, and you simply want to be like everybody else. Now we all know what kind of problem that can raise for the church when here's a congregation, well those down the street do it this way. Those across town do it this way. I think we ought to do it that way. To simply imitate what someone else has done or chosen to do without always giving close regard to how wise it is, how appropriate it is for this different spot, or in some cases even how scriptural it is. Just again doing what someone else has done. You and I remember the danger our parents may have instilled with us. Don't just do it because everybody else does. That's terribly unwise, isn't it? To do it just because someone else has done it. 
But sometimes in the church, we can be afflicted with that kind of mentality, can't we? Just parroting Mr. or Mrs. Imitator. In Luke 16, 15, as Jesus made this interesting statement, He gave commandment and great blessing and commendation to those who take to heart the Word of God and do that. Notice, they're not following simply what others do. They're letting the Word of God be their pattern be that which dictates for them what is or is not to be done. Maybe one of the strongest verses that at least is worthy of thought touching this subject would be the opening chapter of the Galatian epistle. Paul said, If I should be those who please men, I will not be the servant of Christ. Now that's strong, isn't it? If my mentality or yours is simply to please what men may prefer or what they may desire, I make myself that which will not please Christ. And surely none of us want that. Maybe in light of that matter of imitation, the last observation I would ask you to make, again, reminds us that imitating Christ is the wonderful and perfect ideal, and we'll never go wrong with that one. But to imitate men... And isn't it true, sometimes even men who otherwise occupy very influential stations can reach a point where they let us down. We always need to be mindful and place our utmost confidence, not in what men may say, because men can ultimately make mistakes eventually. But of course, Jesus never does. Number eight, what about Mr. Business Commentator? To commentate, of course, means to afford one's perspective, to afford one's ideas or opinions. Mr. and Mrs. Commentator is very quick in an organization, including a church, to where they're simply quick to say, well, I think we ought to do it this way, and in many ways are unwilling to accept anything else. will always tend to move things in a direction that's at least characteristic of what they prefer. This kind of person is often rather hurtful to a congregation because no one really wants to present any ideas because they always know how it's going to work out. Commentator is going to rule the day. Commentator will be the one who is forceful enough to assert his or her views overruling even the good ideas others may have. Commentator. A few of the verses that... I would urge you to consider in light of this one. This kind of thing will obviously not be very encouraging to a loving family. A family that's known, again, for a disposition of love and fellow encouragement. Didn't Paul write that they were to rejoice with those that rejoice, to weep with those that weep? The activities of commentator will militate against that. But verses such as Proverbs 18, verse 13, among other things, will remind us of the sweetness of the opposite disposition of commentator. And 1 Peter 1, 22, didn't the inspired writer there say how marvelous it is to appreciate the nature of truth as revealed by the Holy Spirit in light of setting forth the positions and attitudes? And indeed He did. These eight taters so far have not been pleasant ones. We have a little more unpleasantness to go. Lamentator. 
The word lament, of course, means to express a degree of grief or sorrow. And there certainly is a place, and you and I probably have noted it well, for those who use that mentality and take it to an extreme. Lamentator always lives in the past. Well, we did it like this 25 years ago. You know, we did it this way 30 years ago. We did it this way 10 years ago. Always living in the past. Never appreciating that perhaps the necessities and the appreciations of current matters may in fact demand that there's a better way of doing it now. You may have known some who seemingly thrived by ever recalling and ever asserting the place of what was long since past. Lamentator is one where it's quite often the case that this person will see no good in anything in the present. I suppose all of us are quick to see the evils of the present day and the things that certainly are not as we wish they were. But let's face it, if we aren't careful, we'll forget that 20 years ago, if you were alive, there were problems back then too. There were issues and difficulties. In fact, do you remember? It's been almost exactly 20 years ago to the month. In fact, to the month indeed, nearly the day that 9-11 took place. And we lamented on what the world was like then. And back then we could lament on what it was like years prior to it. The issue is, may we never think that things were perfect in the past and that today they're not. For the past had its problems too. It had its challenges and difficulties and it had its mistaken viewpoints. So may we never somehow lift up the past as though it was ideal. It may be in that connection. We come to verses such as Philippians 3.14. You may recall in verses 13 and 14 of that chapter, Paul could easily say, forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to those things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul easily had understood the nature of the past and that which occurred prior to the present day. And he said, I've got to forget that. I do not need to allow it to hamper my present and to restrict what the future may be. I have to look upon it for what it was, learn from, it, learn from the mistakes that were made, and use them to help me be better today. And that's sound advice even for you and me, isn't it? So may we not allow Lamentator to quash the capabilities and the potential of the present and future Number 10 is facilitator. I might say we're now able to leave behind the, the rotten taters. Let's come to a positive one. A facilitator. That's a person that can get things done. A person that can motivate and compel others in a direction to accomplish that which is needful and appropriate and something that will be beneficial. I think all of us love the thought of a facilitator. On the slide, I've tried to define it this way. This person is able to use his or her skills and talents in a way, not in a dictatorial way, but in a way that presents leadership to carry out a task and allow others to assist in the accomplishment of a good work. A congregation needs facilitators. Quite often, these are great blessings to an eldership. 
An eldership, as they appreciate the skills and talents of those in the congregation, maybe there's a work that's needful and they can, in fact, associate the skills of that person with this task or work that needs to be done and allow them to use their skill to carry it out in a way that is a great blessing to be sure. Mr. or Mrs. Facilitator, this person can see opportunities for accomplishment and they often can thus motivate others in an unpretentious way to carry it out. The lesson text that was read earlier today in 1 Timothy 4.12 is a text reminding us of some of the matters of facilitator. Paul said, Let no man despise thy youth. Young people even can be a tremendous asset to the work of the church. You don't have to be 65 years old. Many of the great characters of the Word of God, even while in their youth, what about Daniel? The book of Daniel, what a young man he was. And yet in Daniel 1.8, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. And he had such an influence even among the place he was that these heathens came to regard the God of heaven. Read the closing verses of Daniel chapter 2. Maybe it is in that light. We can appreciate that whether young or old, there's opportunity to facilitate and to help carry out the marvelous and needful work of the God of heaven. At this point, may I close the lesson with one more. I'm sure you had to expect that sweet tater would be a good way to end it. Many of us enjoy eating sweet potatoes, I have to admit. Denise can fix such a delightful dish in that, and it's so tasty. And yet, what about from the perspective of Mr. or Mrs. Sweet Tater. This person has a disposition that's caring and compassionate, a disposition that regards itself in the proper way, and is just a generally recognized person of sweetness and love. A person who, you see, is the kind of person that we seemingly see characteristically described so often in the Word of God. A person of humility, a person who really does have a degree of compassion for the concerns and the matters in the lives of others. Jesus, you see, was a person of compassion, wasn't He? When He saw the group and they had been with Him hearing Him preach, and yet as the shades of evening gathered, they had not eaten. And the Lord, Mark 6.34 said, had compassion on them. He proceeded to feed 5,000 men not counting children and women, with but five loaves and two fish. But that was prompted by his concern that as they were wearied, and perhaps in the way, their journey would not be safe. Are you and I sweet taters? At least by way of this description. In Matthew 5 verse 8, Among the Beatitudes, the Lord Himself said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Doesn't that highlight that essence of purity and innocence? That essence of disposition given to those lovely attributes that we find upheld in the Word of God. As we close our lesson this Sunday morning, we've looked at a host of the Tater family. Many of them were rotten, I confess. But yet even in the rottenness, we can learn valuable lessons so that we might not be given to that behavior. I've listed them for you at the bottom of that slide and one by one as we looked at them. I hope also we were in some ways looking in a mirror and asking, am I guilty of that? Is that somewhat like me? 
Are those viewpoints what I on occasion have exhibited? Then I hope we each will think with care about that and make the necessary changes in our life, in our heart, in our way of thinking. But surely the last two, the facilitator and the sweet-tater, were very highly encouraged in the Word of God. Does those, do those describe you and me? I hope as we close that lesson that we'll be reminded that there are many ways to look at the Word of God and maybe the Tater family has been one way that has set before us many things, all of which are desired to make us better. Some things that we need to put off and some things that we need to encourage. It might well be the case that someone in this assembly today is in a position in life in which maybe you need to come to the Lord. It may be that you have never initially rendered obedience to the gospel. You know the Lord died for you. You know He went to the cross for you. And to this point in life, though you have given it some thought, you haven't acted upon it. If that's true, are you not being Mr. Hesitator? Are you not being the one that procrastinates? For if the world ends, ends this afternoon, where will you be? If you were to die tonight, where will you be? You can't rely on the day of judgment to say, Well, Lord, I meant to. I intended to. I just needed a little bit more time. That line of consideration will get you nowhere. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If you have never taken care of that need in your life, won't you allow the Lord to mold your heart for the remainder of your life into what He would want you to be? And we'd be happy today to help. You need to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of the sins in your life, for they've what put Him on that cross. Make a grand confession that He is the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And today, if we could help in that way, what a glorious fifth day in September 2021 it will be for you. But it could well be that you have known the walk of faithfulness and you have appreciated its blessings and maybe at a time you were Mr. or Mrs. Facilitator or Sweet-Tater. But over time, you may have become jaded, cynical, or in some ways lacking in faithfulness concerning the Word of God. You realize you can make changes. You can come back to your first love under the banner of Revelation 2.5. And today, if that would be the desire and need of your heart, an assembly of people would be happy to celebrate with you today over your reinstatement to faithfulness and the reappearance of your name in the Lamb's book of life. If today that would be the need, you need to repent of those sins. You need to make confession of them, and we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. If the need is yours in either one of those ways today, we want to encourage you to be a sweet tater from this day forward and do so as you serve God faithfully. And that begins by what you might do as you respond while together we stand and while we sing.